Hey, everybody, coming up on today's episode of The Virtual Couch, we're going to learn about confirmation bias. Why do we all want to hang with folks and ideas that go along with ours, and why that can ultimately become a challenge for being uniquely you? Plus, why all the Teslas? So that and more coming up on The Virtual Couch. Okay, uh, more email feedback before we get to the show. And this one is so good. This one is um, is my favorite. I know we're not supposed to have favorites. Each and every email is very important to me, just like all of my kids. But uh, you're going to like this one a lot. It says, Tony, and I did get permission from the, uh, the author of this email. Tony, therapy is like a bathroom in the middle of a long run. They already have me right there. I've got plenty of stories about bathrooms in the middle of a long run. Uh, but the person goes on to say, just, uh, just wait to let you know you're making a difference in my life. My wife first introduced me to your podcast a year or so during a rough period of time for both of us. Discussing your episodes has broken the ice for some much needed conversations between us, which I'm so grateful for. I really am. Um, back to the email. That alone has been amazing. I'm using BetterHelp, thanks to you. I live in a small town. Let me just say, that would be betterhelp.com slash virtual couch. Please, please go there. If you're going to check, uh, take a look at betterhelp.com, please go to betterhelp.com slash virtual couch. It really helps the podcast. But he says, I'm using BetterHelp, thanks to you. I live in a small town, and the counselor options are slim. Plus, I never saw myself as somebody who needed therapy. I came close a few times to setting up appointments, but I always backed out. Betterhelp.com slash virtual couch is so easy. Before you can have a second thought, they have you matched up. I love that because the uh, that process is very easy on betterhelp.com. The barrier to entry is so low. I've been using it for a few weeks now, and I know it's going to make a difference in my life. Now to explain my crude analogy. My wife and I are training for a marathon. During a long run, we were catching up, and I was telling her about my experience with BetterHelp. A few miles later, we were passing a bathroom. I tried to tell myself I could tough it out, and I didn't want to stop and break my rhythm. Boy, have I been there. One of these days, I'm going to tell a story about uh, why I hold a Strava record in the town of Davis during a one particular one-mile stretch of a half marathon that has to do with exactly this concept. But that will be a very vulnerable uh, story for me. Back to the email. But I tried to tell myself I could tough it out and didn't want to stop and break my rhythm. I told myself I was tougher than that, but I stopped. After, I ran faster, felt better, and was glad I stopped. Therapy is the same. I was telling myself I wasn't that guy and that I could tough it, and that I could tough it out. Now that I'm going, I feel better, and uh, it's worth the brief pause on life. Keep up the good work. So thank you for that email. Again, these are coming in pretty regularly now, and I'm grateful for that. So please go to betterhelp.com slash virtual couch, and uh, just know that, uh, that betterhelp.com, over 500,000 people have already signed up, done this before you as well. Um, they're going to betterhelp.com slash virtual couch, getting the help they need, even the help that they didn't know they need, as we learned about in this email today. There's a broad range of expertise in the counselor network that might not be available in local areas. Uh, it's available for clients worldwide. You can log in to your account anytime and send a message to your therapist. You get timely and thoughtful responses. You can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room, even though my waiting room is very nice. I will admit that. But, uh, but some, some aren't, or you're, you might, you don't want to run into somebody, you know, but better help will assess your needs, match with your own licensed professional therapist. And you can often start communicating in less than 24 hours. And, uh, they also have scholarships. So if you are struggling financially, but you really want that help, um, betterhelp.com slash virtual couch, go through there, sign up, and, uh, you will find out that there are a lot of, um, options for you on betterhelp.com slash virtual couch, even if you are struggling financially. And, uh, and I actually have coming up later this week, I have one of the, um, a, a kind of a big deal at betterhelp.com. And they're coming on to talk about the whole um, experience of BetterHelp. And I'm really excited for you to hear that interview. It, it, it's it's going to sound a little bit advertising, 
But man, we get into the nuts and bolts of how it works and uh, signing up for accounts and the way the therapists work and all that. So I'm, I'm really excited to share that interview coming up later this week. Um, there's a special offer for Virtual Couch listeners. You get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash virtual couch. So what are you waiting for? Go sign up today. Everybody, thank you for tuning in to episode 149 of the Virtual Couch. I'm your host, Tony Overbay. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, certified mindful advocate, coach, writer, speaker, husband, father, four, ultra marathon runner, and creator of the Path Back, an online pornography recovery program that is helping people like you reclaim their lives from the harmful effects of turning to pornography as a coping mechanism, as a habitual pattern. If you or anybody that you know is struggling to put pornography behind you once and for all, and trust me, it can be done, and done in a healthy, cup filling, strength based, hold the shame way. Please head over to pathbackrecovery.com. There you can download a short ebook that describes five common mistakes that people make when trying to overcome pornography addiction. Again, that is pathbackrecovery.com. And please take a second to visit the virtual couch on Instagram at virtual couch. And you can now find virtual couch page on Facebook. There's always Tony Overbay licensed marriage and family therapist page on there as well. And last but not least, please stop by tonyoverbay.com and sign up there to find out more about a lot of really exciting things, programs, all kinds of stuff that's coming soon. And I, I'm looking at a camera right now. Um, I, I, I'm still not quite sure if you're just going to get audio over at the Virtual Couch uh, Facebook. No, what's the thing? YouTube, where they watch the videos. Virtual Couch YouTube page, uh, but also doing a little bit of filming. That is uh, part of something, uh, a bigger project that is coming up down the road. So please go find the Virtual Couch YouTube channel. And uh, it might be a little bit of video there. There's definitely going to be audio of the podcast of every episode over there. And if you're over there, please like that, follow that, subscribe to that. That would uh, that would be great as well. And if you leave a review on the Apple Podcast app or Spotify or Google Play Store, just leave it. Shoot me an email at contact at tonyoverbay.com with your mailing address. Let me know if you're interested in a virtual couch magnet or a virtual couch sticker, and I will send you them right away. I've already placed the new orders. Apparently the magnets are what people are looking for in particular. Stickers aren't bad though. So, uh, hey, let's get to the show. Okay. So have you ever had the experience of buying a new car? And then as you drive it around, noticing a lot of the same model on the roads more than you had ever realized that there were before. Um, and there's other there's other examples of this, even buying a pair of shoes and all of a sudden noticing that a lot of people are wearing those similar types of shoes or apparently hairstyles, something that I've never necessarily had uh, that experience. I guess so bald, though. I do remember when I first started shaving my head a long time ago, have to do my uh, patented joke right here where I would often tell people that I was shaving my head before shaving my head was cool, at which point my wife would say, is it cool or has it ever got to be that point of cool? Um, but, but have you ever had that experience? And again, back to the cars. And then you notice that there are lots of the cars that you, uh, you maybe have just purchased or you're aware of. Um, and it, that brings up a story. So I've been aware of the automobile of Tesla's for a very long time. And no, I don't have a Tesla. I do kind of want one now I'll more about that coming up here in a second, but I recently had a friend purchase one and I had talked with them for quite a while about the purchase and had just uh, learned so much about Tesla's that I never knew about. And when he finally did buy one, he took me for a ride in it. And for those of you who already own a Tesla or have ridden in one on several occasions, this is nothing new to you. But for those of you who have not ridden in one, they, they are something else. I mean, they are, uh, they're pretty incredible. Um, I won't even go into the autopilot mode or self parking or summoning the car or, 
uh, I don't know, even changing the distance um, that you are off the road, like your ride, your suspension. The things that he showed me about the car mapping out your drive based on charging stations, uh, apparently not letting you go somewhere because you will run out of battery life. I mean, if my understanding is correctly or correct, you will uh, plug in a destination, start to take off, and it, or it will even tell you there is no charging station on the way. So you either have to creep along at five miles an hour or don't go there. Don't go that route. So um, th- it just sounds like uh, it sounds like pretty incredible the the whole way the car works. But the thing that I truly didn't understand was I believe called ludicrous mode. If you're familiar with that, and I even had to Google it to find out the the details. But it said zero to sixty in less than two point five seconds. So this person had told me about this ludicrous mode. That was one of the things that they really wanted. Apparently, it's a software upgrade, which still just blows my mind. So we're driving. He pulls over to the side. He says, "Okay, go ahead and make sure that." your head is back against the seat. And I really thought that he was kind of kidding. Um, but then uh, I guess that's the load or something. Again, this is stuff that I am not familiar with how that works. But then he hits the gas or whatever you do with the Tesla. I don't know if it's just a mind trick or whatever. But all of a sudden, I am just up, up against the back of that seat. And it reminded me, the only thing I can describe is if you've been to Disney's California Adventure in Southern California and the California Screaming Roller Coaster, when you just all of a sudden take off, and uh, that's what we were doing. And we were going so fast, I'm just plastered up against the back of that seat. But that was called ludicrous mode. So the whole point of this experience or the story that I'm talking about is that after after just being more aware of Teslas, I just started to notice, oh my gosh, there's Teslas everywhere. And I'm seeing them all the time. And either they've always been there or they are just selling so quickly now or or I just now that I'm more aware of them. I am more aware of them, and I am starting to look around over and over and seeing them everywhere. And it doesn't just have to be a Tesla. I have to tell you, uh, and this might even make people laugh, but I have a couple of Mini Coopers. I am not a tall man. So is it a uh, is it a short man syndrome, short man complex? I'm not really sure. Uh, I really just like them. They're sporty. They're easy to park, you know. But I remember when I first got my, when I got my first uh, Mini Cooper, a friend of mine who had one said, "Hey, just all of a sudden you're gonna you're gonna see them everywhere because." You're in Club Mini Cooper. So when you drive by somebody else with one, you wave. A lot of waving done. And I, I grew up with a Jeep. And I remember that uh, a lot of people wave to other people who have a Jeep. And so sure enough, when I get on the road with a Mini Cooper, what do I start to notice? Oh, my gosh, there's a ton of Mini Coopers around. And then I start noticing that not as many people wave. Then I wonder, is that about me? Um, you know, do they not? Uh, anyway, that, and that was a whole other thing in, its, uh, in and of itself. But the waving to other Mini Cooper drivers did make me very aware of the Mini Cooper. So that is how confirmation bias works. And so if, you know, if you're not careful, then all of a sudden you are overestimating how many cars out there that are the same as yours. And all of a sudden you might be telling somebody, no, Mini Coopers dominate the market or Teslas dominate the market. And that person's saying, no, 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 they don't. You know, the, the Ford Fusion does or something like that. And then uh, you, you might end up doing a little bit of Googling and find out, oh, wow, there are not as many Mini Coopers on the road as I thought that there were. They aren't dominating the market. But again, confirmation bias. You, you're ignoring hundreds of counterexamples in the form of other models. So today I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about confirmation bias. And I'm kind of going to do a deep dive on a couple of things to set up the concept of confirmation bias. But as I like to do, I like to reference an article when I'm doing a podcast. And this one is called, it's from a website called verywellmind.com. And it's called How Confirmation Bias, uh, How Confirmation Bias Works. And we interpret facts to confirm our beliefs. It's by a woman named Kendra Cherry. And uh, the it says here, updated August 8th, 2019, so it's fresh, and approved by the Wellness Board expert Amy Marin, who is a licensed clinical social worker, which is uh, similar to what I do as a licensed marriage and family therapist. So the article starts out by saying, where do your beliefs and opinions come from? 
Um, if you are like most people, you honestly believe that your convictions are rational, logical, and impartial based on the result of years of experience and objective analysis of the information you have available. In reality, all of us are susceptible to a tricky problem known as confirmation bias. Our beliefs are often based on paying attention to the information that upholds them while at the same time tending to ignore the information that challenges them. So right out of the gate, you know, I hope that that kind of causes you to pause or think about things. Just that concept of our our beliefs, our convictions, we believe that they are rational, that they're logical, and that they're impartial because of all of our, what we call, and in, in the thing I love, the type of therapy I love, it's called acceptance and commitment therapy, and we talk about what your private experiences are. So based on your private experiences, or if you're a deep psychological or psychology nerd, um, your schema, the way that you kind of come to this situation in your life, all of the things that bring you to the point that you're at right now are, are a big part of what causes you to feel like you are rational, logical, and impartial. So here's where I want to set things up a little bit. First of all, setup number one is these this concept of private experiences. Again, if we go back into this world of acceptance and commitment therapy, and if you're watching on the YouTube channel, I'm going to hold up a book right now. This is a good one. This is one that I just purchased, and I'm going to be talking a little bit more about that one. It's called Act Made Simple, and it is by Russ Harris, who is author of The Happiness Trap, The Confidence Gap, a couple of my very favorite acceptance and commitment therapy books. But, uh, but the concept of private experiences, and, and here we go. Let me, let, this is, I love this part of acceptance and commitment therapy. You are the only person in the world who has your experiences. And we're talking whether it's nature or nurture, whether it's birth order. So we're talking about, you know, DNA. We're talking about the experience that, that your parents have put upon you. We're talking about your, um, how many siblings did you have? How were you treated? Did you move a lot? Did you happen to move somewhere where you had a best friend? Did you move away from a best friend? Did you move somewhere where there weren't a lot of friends? Were you isolated? Were you lonely? Um, where you flooded with people all the time and couldn't get away, couldn't find time to be lonely. You are the only person with those, all of those exact experiences. Again, they call these private experiences that brings you to where you are today. So, so that's one of those setup number one in, in regard to confirmation bias. Those, those experiences matter because those are part of what you then build in as a rational, logical and impartial conviction based on your private experiences. Setup number two, and I know I'm going to oversimplify this big time, is that by nature, we we are tribal creatures. Um, left to our own, we're worried that we're going to be eaten by wolves. So from a biologically evolutionary standpoint, we tend to form groups. Now, initially, it was for safety. And then over time, it even became things like economies of scale. Uh, in a very well-run community, we can leverage everybody's strengths and talents. You may have farmers, you might have hunters, you might have nurturers, gatherers, engineers. And when run in harmony, all is well. But we still have this fear in the back of our minds of what if we're not useful or what if we're not wanted and uh, then the tribe might boot us out. And uh, actually, I mentioned Russ Harris and, and I, you know, I am uh, looking at some notes here. So bear with me. We are going to jump over and uh, I have to pull up the book, The Happiness Gap or The Happiness Trap. And uh, I can be here in less than 10 seconds. Here we go. Why is it so difficult to be happy? I am going to read. I'm going to read from the book, The Happiness Trap. And I've talked about this in a couple of other podcasts, but I think this is really, really important. Again, even just in the concept of setting up confirmation bias. Uh, author Russ Harris in the book, The Happiness Trap says, why is it so difficult to be happy? He says, to answer this question, let's take a journey back in time. He said, the modern mind with its amazing ability to analyze, plan, create, and communicate 
has largely evolved uh, over time since uh, Homo Homo sapiens first appeared on the planet. But our minds did not evolve to make us feel good so that we could tell jokes or write poems or say I love you. Our minds evolved to help us survive in a world fraught with danger. This is important. He says, imagine that you're an early human hunter-gatherer. What are your essential needs in order to survive and reproduce? There are four of them, food, water, shelter, and sex. But none of these things matter if you are dead. So the number one priority of the primitive human mind was to look out for anything that might harm you and avoid it. The primitive mind was, and I use this term in therapy often, it was a don't get killed device and it proved enormously useful. The better our ancestors became at anticipating and avoiding danger, the longer they lived and the more children they had. And again, I promise you I'm making a connection here to this concept of confirmation bias. So Russ Harris says, with each generation, the human mind became increasingly skilled at predicting and avoiding danger. And now... After 100,000 years or so of evolution, the modern mind is constantly on the lookout, assessing and judging everything we encounter. Is this good or bad? Is it safe or dangerous? Is it harmful or helpful? These days, though, it is not a saber-toothed tiger or the wolves or woolly mammoths that warn us about our, that our minds are warning us about. Instead, now we're warning, our minds are warning us about losing a job, being rejected, getting a speeding ticket, embarrassing ourselves in public, getting cancer, or a million and one other common worries. So as a result, we spend a lot of time worrying about things that more often than not won't happen. Again, from a mind that thinks it's doing us a favor as a don't get killed device. So another essential for survival of any human being is to belong to a group. Here we go. This is where I was, this is where I wanted to get to. If your clan boots you out, it will not be long before the wolves find you. So how does your mind protect you from rejection by the group? By comparing you with other members of the clan. Am I fitting in? Am I doing the right thing? Am I contributing enough? Am I as good as others? Am I doing anything that might get me rejected? And he says, sound familiar? He said, our modern day minds are continually warning us of rejection and comparing us with the rest of society. So no wonder we spend so much time and energy worrying about whether people will like us. No wonder we're always looking for ways to improve ourselves or putting ourselves down because we don't, quote, measure up. A hundred thousand years ago, we only had a few members of our immediate clan to compare ourselves with. But these days, we only need to glance at a newspaper. Kids, those are things uh, of the past. You can Google those. Magazines, kind of similar. Or television to instantly find a whole host of people who are smarter, richer, slimmer, sexier, more famous, more powerful, or more successful than we are. And when when we compare ourselves to these glamorous media creations, we feel inferior or disappointed with our lives. To make matters worse... Our minds are now so sophisticated that they can even conjure up a fantasy image of the person we'd ideally like to be, and then we compare ourselves to that. What chance do we have? He says, we'll always end up feeling not good enough. So then he says, with any uh, Stone Age person with ambition, the general rule of success is get more and get better. The more uh, better your weapons, the more food you can kill, the larger your food stores, the greater your chances of survival in times of scarcity, the better your shelter, the safer you are from weather and wild animals, the more children you have, the greater chance that some will survive into adulthood. No wonder, no surprise that our modern mind continually looks for more and better, more money, a better job, more status, a better body, more love, a better partner. And if we succeed, if we actually do get more money or a better car or a better looking body, then we are satisfied. But only for a while, right? Because sooner or later, and usually sooner, we end up wanting more. So, last paragraph. He says, thus, evolution has shaped our brains so that we are hardwired to suffer psychologically, to compare, to evaluate, to criticize ourselves, to focus on what we're lacking, to rapidly become dissatisfied with what we have, to imagine all sorts of frightening scenarios, most of which will never happen. No wonder humans find it hard to be happy. Again, Russ Harris, the book is called The Happiness Trap, one of my favorites. Let's get back to the notes on today's episode. The reason why I go into that much detail is, again, we're setting up this concept of confirmation bias. Why do we surround ourselves only with things that back up our our beliefs, that only back up our situation? So setup number three, and uh, this is our desire for secure attachment, and also known as the do you care about me? And let me kind of backtrack one second. Uh, I did the first paragraph out of the, the article, How Confirmation Bias Works, 
um, the one by uh, Kendra Cherry and uh, on very well on the verywellmind.com. And then these setups are these private experiences, uh, this concept of, from the happiness trap and this third one, the secure attachment are just some things that I've thrown in here to set the table. We're going to get back to that article. So setup number three, our desire for a secure attachment, also known as, and what I said, do you care about me? So we got Sue Johnson, the founder of Emotionally Focused Therapy, uh, author of Hold Me Tight, author of the book Love Sense, had a follow oh, in her book Love Sense. She quoted, here's a quote she had where she was actually quoting another psychologist. Sue Johnson said, the message touted by popular media and therapists has been that we're supposed to be in total control of our emotions before we turn to others. Love yourself first, and then another will love you. But she says, our new knowledge stands that message on its head. And she says, for humans, and this is now quoting psychologist Ed Tronick of the University of Massachusetts, the maintenance of emotional balance is a dyadic collaborative process. In other words, we are designed to deal with emotion in concert with another person, not by ourselves. And this all comes back from that, that, uh, that theory of attachment, where we come out of the womb, we are tiny, squishy babies, and we cannot fend for ourselves. So we have a need, an, an innate desire to form attachments, to form bonds. Um, she says that now it is, it is clear that there is a literal neural overlap in the way we process and experience relational and physical pain. Both pains, as experiments by psychologist Naomi Eisenberger at UCLA attest, are alarm systems designed to grab our attention and focus our resources on minimizing threat. The threat and hurt feelings arising from triggers such as rejection by a loved one is emotional loss and separation. So in mammals, perhaps because of our need to extend maternal care, isolation is a clear danger cue. It registers as a physical threat to survival. So I hope you can start to see the, the, what, the point that I'm trying to try to put together here. We've got this concept of confirmation bias where we just want to find people and things that back up what our private experiences are. And we also have this desire to kind of fit in as a tribe or, or a group because we don't want to be thrown to the saber-toothed tigers or woolly mammoths. And then we've got this uh, this neural overlap in physical and emotional pain, so that, that it registers as a physical threat to survival when we, are, uh, when we feel isolated or when we feel alone. So she said this neural overlap explains why researchers have found that Tylenol can reduce hurt feelings and emotional support can lessen physical pain, including that of childbirth or cancer treatment, heart surgery. Our need for connection with others has shaped our neural makeup and the structure of our emotional life. Uh, the good news is that if we were emotionally starved in our childhood relationships, our adult lovers offer us a second chance to learn new and more effective ways to deal with our emotions and signal our longings to others. So there's a little plug for if your marriage is not something that you really want it to be, get help. Seek, seek, uh, seek some marriage counseling, some therapy there. But uh, she goes on to say, Sue Johnson goes on to say, more secure bonding teaches us how to tolerate, work with, use our emotions. And being able to manage our emotions in turn helps us adapt to and connect with others. A secure relationship is one where we learn to become emotionally intelligent. Loving partners help us when we're confused and unsure about our feelings is when we feel too little or we feel too much. If we find ourselves caught in the too much or too little mode across a lot of situations and relations, chances are we're having a problem with emotional balance and with regulating our emotions. The ability to find this balance is the most basic lesson we learn or we don't learn from our early attachment figures. Those of us who have had even just one positive relationship with a parental figure, we have an advantage. We, re, we, we acquire a procedural map of how to hold our emotional equilibrium and connect with others. So being in balance with somebody allows us to move in many directions easily and have more ways of responding to and what she calls dancing with others. So all this adds up to the fact that the more secure we are, the more able we are to turn up our emotions up or down with relative ease, a secure base creates safety that continues to foster personal growth, emotional balance, and loving connection. Being able to securely attach is a gift that keeps on giving. So positive emotions turn on our curiosity and desire to engage and explore. 
and they set us up for openness and learning. Joy, for example, invigorates us. So those are those three. I wanted to set the table here for confirmation bias with those three things. We've got our own private experiences. We've got this uh, challenge of why it is so difficult to be happy because we don't want to be booted out of the group. And we have this desire for a secure attachment, a desire that comes from the factory. It's a factory setting. And that when we have a secure attachment with our partner, we have this dyadic collaborative process. In other words, we are designed to be in in concert with another person with our emotions, not to have to deal with those things by ourselves. Now, do people have to deal with those things by themselves? Absolutely. I'm pointing this out that this is where we are leaning toward. This is why, again, we seek to have this confirmation bias, to find things, people, beliefs, um, groups that, that are in line with our beliefs. This is why we do that, because we want this, this collaborative process, this emotional attachment, this group. We don't want to be kicked out of the group. So back to this article, um, understanding confirmation bias. So a confirmation bias is a type of cognitive bias that involves favoring information that confirms your previously existing beliefs or biases. And, you know, I guess I shouldn't wait till the end to kind of drop the one of the goals or one of the, of my hopes in understanding confirmation bias is just to be aware that, that this is the way we work. No guilt or shame behind that. But so a lot of times being able to step back from our confirmation biases is what helps us become more empathetic. It is what kind of puts us out there and helps us try to understand where other people are coming from, knowing that they too have confirmation biases. They also have their own private experiences. They also have their own fears of being booted out of the group. And they also have their fears of lack of secure attachment. So, hey, there's empathy, right? So, so the um, Amy Moran says here, uh, actually, it's Kendra Cherry, right? Amy Moran just gave it the okay. Kendra Cherry, uh, what she then goes on to say, she says, I hope you can see by all these setups now, why we desperately want to find information that confirms our previously existing beliefs. Um, why? Because we desperately want our tribe or our person we want our secure attachment to operate from. So she says, for example, imagine that a person holds a belief that left-handed people are more creative than right-handed people. As a left-handed person, um, I want to make a joke here and say that I also have that belief, but I know I am very confident that I am not as creative as many people. But let's get back to this example. Uh, so she says, okay, so imagine that left-handed people, if you had this belief that left-handed people are more creative, um, then whenever this person encounters a person that is both left-handed and creative, they place greater importance on this, quote, evidence that supports what they already have or what they already believe. So this individual might even seek proof that further backs up this belief while discounting examples that don't support the idea. Welcome to confirmation bias. Confirmation biases impact how we gather information. They also influence how we interpret and recall information. And that I think this one's key of how you recall information based on your own confirmation bias as well. For example, people who support or oppose a particular issue will not only seek information to support it, but they will also interpret news stories in a way that upholds their existing ideas. They will also remember details in a way that reinforces these attitudes. So uh, the next section that she has, uh, that Kendra has, is confirmation biases in action. She says, consider the debate over gun control. She said, let's say that Sally is in support of gun control. So what does she do? She seeks out news stories and opinion pieces that reaffirm um, what she believes is a need for limitations on gun ownership. So again, that's uh, assuming that Sally is in support of gun control. Um, now let's go to, she says, uh, Henry, on the other hand, is adamantly opposed to gun control. He seeks out news sources that are aligned with his position. And um, when he comes across news stories about shootings, he interprets them in a way that supports his current point of view. So these two people have very different opinions on the same subject. And their interpretations are based on their beliefs. Even if they read the same story, and I think this is what's what's fascinating about confirmation bias. Even if they read the same story, their bias tends to shape the way that they perceive the details, further confirming their beliefs. 
And I see this all the time in therapy. If I might even be kind of sharing uh, to normalize, sharing some nice, uh, I don't know, even evidence-based data that might, in my mind, feel like I'm going to help put someone at ease, maybe with their parenting, for example, a parenting style, or when, when parents often feel like they are losing control of their teenager. And I try to normalize that. I might even uh, refer to ex- examples of stories where, you know, a parent has just now decided to double down on just love for their teenage, their teenager. And I have, you know, a lot of examples where then teenager comes back around and is very happy that parent never gave up on them or was always there for them. But the person, all the person may hear when I'm sharing that experience is uh, that they aren't doing it right right now. It's like we tend to just hear based on our confirmation bias as well, whether that's positive or negative. Um, so the impact of confirmation biases. So Kendra Cherry says that in the 1960s, cognitive psychologist Peter Cathcart uh, Wason, or Wasson conducted a number of experiments known as, I'll say, Wasson's Rule uh, Discovery Task. He demonstrated that people have a tendency to seek information that confirms their existing beliefs. So unfortunately, this type of bias can prevent us from looking at situations objectively. It can also influence the decisions we make, and it can lead to poor or faulty choices. So during an election season, for example, people tend to seek positive information that paints their favorite candidates in a good light. They will also look for information that casts the opposing candidate in a negative light. So by not seeking out objective facts, interpreting information in a way that only supports their existing beliefs, and only remembering details that uphold these beliefs, they often miss important information. So these details and facts might have otherwise influenced their decision on which candidate to support. So observation by a psychologist. In his book, Research in Psychology, Methods and Design, uh, James Goodwin gives a great example of confirmation bias as it applies to extrasensory perception, also known as ESP. Persons believing in uh, extrasensory perception, also a.k.a. ESP, will keep close track of instances when they were thinking about their mom and then the phone rang and it was her. Yet they ignore the far more numerous times when A, they were thinking about mom and she didn't call, or B, when they were thinking about mom and she did call. So they also, or they weren't thinking about mom and she did call. They also fail to recognize that if they talk to mom about every two weeks, their frequency of thinking about mom will increase near the end of the two-week interval thereby increasing the frequency of a, quote, hit. So, again, not trying to discount someone's experience, but uh, just kind of stepping back from a, um, uh, you know, just this confirmation bias principle of, of just if, if we know mom calls about every two weeks and then we, we think that we kind of lean more toward this ESP belief, uh, then it's we, we ignore those times where we weren't thinking about mom when she calls or those times where we were thinking about mom and she didn't call. As Katherine Sanderson points out in her book, Social Psychology, confirmation bias also helps form and reconfirm stereotypes we have about people. Think about this one, because stereotypes, uh, you know, I think they come in, they are, they are big, they're there. Um, they, I deal with those often in therapy. I guess that's where I was headed with this. Uh, she says, we also ignore information that disputes our expectations. She says, we're more likely to remember and repeat stereotype consistent information and to forget or ignore stereotype inconsistent information, which is one way stereotypes are maintained even in the face of disconfirming evidence. So she said, if you learn that your new Canadian friend hates hockey and loves sailing and that your new um, Hispanic friend hates spicy food and loves rap music, you're less likely to remember this new stereotype because to you, this is inconsistent information. Again, that's from Katherine Sanderson's book, Social Psychology. So confirmation bias is not only found in our personal beliefs, but it can affect our professional endeavors as well. In his book, Psychology by Peter Gray, he offers this example of how confirmation bias may affect a doctor's diagnosis. Um, a study, a, a researcher named Groupman in 2007 pointed out that confirmation bias can cut when can couple with the availability bias in producing misdiagnosis in a doctor's office. A doctor who has jumped to a particular hypothesis as to what disease a patient has 
They then ask questions and look for evidence that tends to confirm that diagnosis while overlooking evidence that would tend to disconfirm it. Groupman suggests that medical training should include a course in inductive reasoning that would make new doctors aware of such biases. Awareness, he said, would lead to fewer diagnostic errors, and a good diagnostician will test his or her initial hypothesis by searching for evidence against that hypothesis. So unfortunately, then, I mean, kind of the setup here, and I go back to the article by Kendra Cherry, she says, we all have confirmation bias. Even if you believe you're very open-minded and only observe the facts before coming to conclusions, it's very likely that some bias will shape your opinion in the end, and it's very difficult to combat this natural tendency. And again, this is where I put in a plug for you first just have to be aware. So she said, that said, if we know about confirmation bias and we accept the fact that it does exist, we can make an effort to recognize it by working to be curious about the opposing view and really listening to what others have to say and why. I love that concept of being curious to the opposing view. Sounds a little bit like uh, like empathy, right? She said, this can help us better see issues and beliefs from another perspective, though we still need to be very conscious of waiting past our confirmation bias. So let's go back to that. Uh, and now here, this is, uh, this is me. I'm back. I'm back. Uh, so let's go back to those private experiences you have. And now frame that in the context that based on those private experiences and your desire to find your tribe, what are you going to do? You're going to then look for things or beliefs or experiences or studies or programs, anything that backs up your point or your experiences or backs up your tribe. But here's where my therapist brain goes crazy because what if these programs or studies or groups or tribes don't exactly quite match up to your unique values, then what do you do then? And I feel like that's one of the one of the things that can just be so liberating about understanding confirmation bias is you do have all of your own individual values that kind of lead to the things that you want to do. And so sometimes when we go ahead and put ourselves in with this confirmation bias into specific boxes of belief or boxes of with groups, uh, we're going to bump into those the, the sides of those boxes. We're maybe going to look over the side of those boxes. We might want to get out of those boxes because they don't entirely jive with our own private experiences. I've worked with many, many people who get into a situation or a group or a club or any of these type of things and then find out once they're in there, they're, whoa, whoa, whoa. I, you know, I liked certain things here, um, which is, I think then speaks to, they had a confirmation bias, which kind of led them to that direction. But now that they are fully immersed in that group or culture or thing, uh, now they find out, wait, wait, this isn't me. So then there's one of two things that happen. One is they say, well, I can't get out now and then slowly start to feel like they are not themselves. They're losing themselves. Or the second part of that is they just learn how to still just be authentic in that group or situation and uh, and just really learn how to, okay, it's okay for me to, to appreciate or believe some of the concepts of this group, um, but, uh, but on others, because of my private experiences, um, that's maybe not necessarily going to be, uh, I'm not going to be completely all in or 100% part of this, whatever this group is. So, so again, that's where my, my brain kind of starts to go a little bit crazy. So what do you do? So it's scary to go authentic on somebody or some group and say that you like them, you like the group, but you don't necessarily agree with everything that the group says. And why is that scary? Because they might boot you out of the group, right? We go back to where we started. So my goal really today was just to make you aware of this whole concept of confirmation bias, because the first steps of changing behavior is truly becoming aware of the behavior and then trying to objectively look at that behavior and see what it's doing for you. Um, recognizing your confirmation bias then is the very first step in taking a step back to see if perhaps there are other thoughts or beliefs or ways to operate in the world. Recognizing confirmation bias can truly lead us to healthy change, uh, empathy toward others, um, and just being aware of, of others, uh, the ways that they live, to experience life, um, to believe can go a long way toward A, 
self-discovery and change, and B, having empathy or understanding that there is a reason why somebody else does what they do. And wouldn't that be a pretty good thing to try and understand that? Try to understand what their own uh, private experiences are or what that must be like for them or why then they have chosen those confirmation biases that they have chosen. And that helps us truly understand what it's like to spend a little time in somebody else's shoes. So where are your confirmation biases? I would really love to hear stories. I would love to hear examples of what comes to mind for you right now um, or what experiences that you've had where you have become aware of a confirmation bias and what you've done to maybe change it. So if you're thinking of something right this second, please do me a favor and open up your email program right this second and compose a message and uh, send it or do a voice recording or anything and just shoot me an email at contact at tonyoverbay.com because I would love to hear what's coming to mind. All right. I hope you have learned a lot about confirmation bias today and, and that with that awareness and those kind of setups, those setups of our own private experiences about our own desire not to be booted out of the group and our own desire to have secure attachments, that those three things combined with this, this idea of confirmation bias and the awareness of that will help you recognize those areas in your life, help you become a little bit more open to learning about others' experiences because ultimately that leads to empathy and empathy leads to understanding, understanding leads to connection and then the entire world is full of rainbows and unicorns and everyone's happy and everybody gets along and that's all, uh, that's our whole goal. All right, <laughs> there, there we go and we'll, uh, we'll talk more about that next time. I'll see you again on the virtual couch. Okay, hey, I hope we all learned something today about confirmation bias, and hopefully you are now incredibly aware of all of your own confirmation biases. And with that awareness, big change to come, I am telling you. And please remember that the virtual couch is not a replacement uh, for professional counseling. I highly recommend you find a therapist, a counselor in your area that you can talk to, or as you've heard me say before the show, take a look at betterhelp.com slash virtual couch. Uh, there you'll get 10% off your first month's services. And if you'd be so kind, I would be forever grateful. If you like something that you heard today, share the show with a friend who you think might benefit from today's topic. And on that note, if you like the show, please take a quick moment to subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. It really does help more people find the podcast. And feel free to contact me at uh, contact at tonyoverbay.com. If you have questions, if you have a topic you think would make a good podcast, or if you're interested in having me come speak to your group, company, organization, congregation about any of the topics that you've heard on the virtual couch. All right, and I will see you next time on the virtual couch.